Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, my name is David, and I serve here at Trinity as lead pastor. This is one of my favorite weeks of the year because Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. So I'm so excited for what is coming up and what we're going to experience this week. But I'm also really excited to be together here this morning. And uh, if you were to walk into our house, um, right in front of you when you walk in our, our, our entrance uh, is a, a set of stairs that lead right upstairs to our bedrooms. And if you were to walk up the stairs and look to the right, you would see um, pictures, school pictures of all three of our girls all the way from kindergarten and pre-K till today. And every now and then as I'm walking up and down those stairs, I stop and I look at them and just the changes to them over the years, it takes my breath away, you know, watching them grow. And you can just see on their faces as the baby fat kind of falls away and they begin to like mature and, and grow. And it's kind of sad, honestly, to see them maturing. I assured them, don't worry, the baby fat comes back later. It comes back like in your 40s, the baby fat returns. Um, but, you know, when a child is growing up, it's so easy to see the visible, physical ways that they're maturing, Right. They get taller, they, they grow up. If you're a boy, your voice might deepen, uh, your hair gets longer, all these different things happen. But the question I want us to think about this morning is, how do you know that you're maturing spiritually? How do you know that you're growing up in Christ? How do you know that you're more mature in Christ today than you were a year ago? We can't take a picture of your spirit and say, oh, look how Look how mature their spirit is now. We can't take a picture of your soul and frame it and put it up on the wall and compare. How do we know? And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is talking about spiritual maturity and growth and growing up in Christ. And I think all of us that are here this morning that would call ourselves Christians would say, we want to grow, right? No one wants to stay the same. No one wants to grow, go backward. Everybody wants to grow. But how do we grow in Maturity, And if you feel stuck this morning in your faith, this message, I think, will help you. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be in verse 12, starting there, he gives us three ways to grow up in our maturity. Three ways. Number one, we have to forget what is behind us. Secondly, we have to learn to fight what is inside of us. And then lastly, we have to be able to focus on what is before us. Forget what's behind Fight what's within or inside of us and then focus on what's before. So let's begin in verse 12. I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. Paul uh, writes, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. If we're going to mature in Christ, the first thing we, you have to do is forget what's behind you. Yesterday, I was just outside of Philadelphia in the Exton, Downingtown 
area. My oldest daughter, Lilia, who's 14, plays club lacrosse, and she had a lacrosse tournament. At the, at the start of her first game, it was 29 degrees. Uh, so it was a little bit cold for lacrosse, but they went for it anyway. And uh, she had three games yesterday, and they were playing some of the best teams in the country. There are national rankings for girls lacrosse, even at the age of 14-year-old, believe it or not. And they played one team that's the number 12 team in the entire nation. They lost to them, but they played well against them. And as my girls have played sports, one of the things that I've learned, especially with my oldest daughter, is that if she makes a mistake out there, it sticks to her. Anyone else like that? You make a mistake and it sticks to you. You can do three good things in a day, but if you do one bad thing, what's the thing that you go home remembering and talking about and processing and falling asleep with it still bouncing around in your head? And she's that way. I think a lot of us are that way. And one of the things that I've tried to teach her is in sports, you have to have a short memory, a short memory. And, you know, every professional team right now has, spends extreme amount of money on sports psychology. Almost every professional team has a full-time or multiple full-time sports psychology. This didn't used to exist. Actually, 1984 Olympic Games is when sort of the role of the sports psychologist all of a sudden became a big deal. And they hire these people because they realize that sports and performance in sports is not just about your physical ability, it's about your mental ability, Right? Mental, and if you're a golfer, you know that golf especially is a mental game, but it's true of all sports. And so I always tell Lilia when she comes off the field, she could have done many things well, but she's going to come back and she say, did you see when I threw that one pass and it wasn't great, it wasn't perfect? And I say, you got to have a short memory. Just forget it. Everybody else has forgotten it. You are the only one that still has to forget it. And that's what Paul is saying here. There are things that we need to forget. We need to have a short memory about. The Greek word forget here means to neglect intentionally to neglect something, to choose to overlook something, or to choose to care nothing about. And so Paul says, forget what's behind you. And we have to forget the bad, and we have to forget the good. Paul had some bad things in his past, didn't he? We've, we've kind of learned a little bit about Paul as we've been studying Philippians. Paul used to persecute Christians. Paul oversaw the arrest and the execution of people who followed after Jesus. Paul had it all wrong, and he had this painful past behind him. But Paul demonstrates for us that because of the way that God's grace and mercy works in our lives, your past doesn't have to determine your future. Who you used to be and the things that you used to do do not have to determine who you will be in the future and the things that you will do in the future. It's important for us all to realize that failing or failure is an event, but it's not a person. And sometimes when we can't forget our past or forget the bad things that we've done, then failure becomes our identity. But failure is not a person, it's an event. You know, last week we saw that Paul, he does remember his past because last week we studied how he he listed off. So it's not like he literally forgets what used to be. Forgetting doesn't mean that you no longer have your memories. Forgetting means that your memories no longer have you, that they don't own you, that they don't control you, that you can revisit some of those things without all of the same emotions returning over and over. This is, easy, this is not easy, but it's necessary. I remember earlier, that, or about a month ago, we were in here on a Wednesday night, and it was one of our adult classes, and Pastor Bill was sharing something with us, and it, it stuck with me, and I asked permission to share it w- with you this morning. And he was saying how that there was a season in his life where he grew up in a home where faith wasn't passed on to him. 
And he got to a season in his life where he was following after Jesus and he was kind of bemoaning and regretting his own upbringing and, and, and some of the things that his parents were unable to give to him. And maybe some of you fit into that category. You're a first-generation believer. You grew up in a home where faith wasn't passed on to you. And he was really struggling with this. And I'll never forget he said this, that in that moment he sensed that the Holy Spirit said to him, the heritage that you've been given is not nearly as important as the one you are leaving. The heritage that you have been given. Some of you, I think, need to hear that this morning because you're looking back at your past and you're thinking of mistakes and things that you've done and things that you wish you could change and you can't go back. We've all learned that, right? You can't go back and change the past. But the heritage that you have received is not nearly as important as the heritage that you are leaving. Every single one of us is leaving a legacy, leaving a heritage, and it's so much important. And if we look back at the bad, we will not grow in Christian maturity. Again, it's not easy, but it's necessary. But the truth is, it's actually not the main point Paul is making here. The main point Paul is making here is that we not just forget the bad, but we need to forget the good also. There are false teachers in Philippi who had adopted a perfectionist view of spirituality. That when you became a Christian or a follower of Jesus, you should be perfect. Total and complete sanctification. And yet Paul does something really interesting here. In verse 12, he says, I am not yet perfect. But then later in verse 14, he says, those of us who are mature. So he's including himself in both groups. I am not yet perfect, and those of us who are mature. And he actually uses the same basic Greek word in both verses. So what is he doing here? On one hand, he says, I'm not yet perfect. But then on the other hand, he says, those of us who are perfect should think this way. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, if you are really perfect slash mature in Christ, you will realize that you are not yet perfect and mature. In other words, one of the surest signs that you are growing in Christ more and more mature is your certainty that you're not there yet, that you haven't arrived. The reality is the more that we come to know Christ, the more we sense our need to grow in Christ. My question to you this morning is as you're sitting here, do you sense your need for him this morning more than you ever have before? Do you sense your need for him more than you ever have before? It's one of the surest signs that you're growing up in Christ. Greater and growing awareness of your need for Jesus combined with greater and growing awareness of and appreciation for the provision that is found in Jesus. So we grow in both. On one hand, we get more and more aware of how much we need him. But on the other hand, we grow more and more aware of how much we can have in him. If you're mature in Christ, here's some things that should be increasingly true of you. You'll be less, you'll be less self-righteous, less likely to look down on others, less likely to judge people who sin differently than you do. You'll be less smug. You'll feel less superior to others. As you grow in grace you'll be more gracious to others because you'll realize how gracious Jesus has been to you. As you see Jesus laying his life down for you, you will be willing to lay your life down for others. As you experience the generosity that is found in Christ, you will find yourself surprisingly generous with your time, talent, and treasures. You'll get more patient with other people because you'll become more aware of how patient Jesus is with you. 
You'll find yourself being kind to people that you previously would have had nothing to do with because you realize that while you were still God's enemy, Jesus Christ expressed the ultimate kindness to you and me by going to the cross and laying his life down for us. So one of the things that I've been doing recently, as I've been, even this week as I've been studying this passage, is when I feel myself being very impatient towards others. And usually, let's be honest, they're the people in our homes. They're the people that we are closest with. They're the people that we tend to take for granted. When I find myself being impatient towards my daughters because they're not moving at the speed that I would like them to move at or because I have to repeat myself for the fourth time, I am learning to say to myself, David, just think for a second about how patient Jesus is with you how patient he is with me. We have to forget the good. You and I have not arrived, and the mature in Christ know that best. So how does this work together? Let me show this to you. If you forget the bad, if you can forget the bad, you will grow in hope. You have more hope in your life for your future. But if you can forget the good, then you'll grow in humility. All right? And we need both of these. We need to forget the bad so that we can grow in hope, but we need to forget the good so that we can grow in humility because, listen, hope and humility is what you and I need to run this race. And that is the metaphor that Paul is, did you hear it? Pressing on, straining forward. Paul is thinking about Olympians who are running a race. And if we're going to run this race, there's two things that you and I need in every season. We need hope and we need humility. When you're in the valley, you need hope. When you're on the mountaintop, you need humility because both can destroy you if you don't have those things, hope and humility. And one of the commentators says it this way, a Christian forgets as they run. We're running, and the whole time we're running, we're forgetting the past, the bad, and the good. If you're going to grow up in Christ, you have to forget what's behind you. Secondly, if you're going to grow in Christ, you have to fight what's inside you. Let's keep reading in this passage two more verses, 18 and 19. Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And now Paul describes these people in verse 9. Four things. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. And their minds are set on earthly things. And I think the key to really understanding this verse is the phrase, their God is their belly. The problem is inside of them. The problem is on the inside. And this is one truth that Paul, in his writings, makes clear over and over. In fact, in Ephesians 4.22, he talks about our deceitful desires. That the desires and the cravings and the appetite, let's call it our belly, within us is deceitful. It lies to us. It tells us you need that. And if you would have that, then you would be satisfied. Then you would be full. And so we have these deceitful desires that say, from the beginning of time, if you just had that, you would be like God, knowing all things. And so we chase after these things. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart because every single thing you and I do flows out of our inside. It flows out of our hearts. So the Bible is clear that our biggest problem is not what's happening around us in our country, in our world, in our families, in our neighborhoods. Our biggest problem is never outside of us. My biggest problem is always inside of me. There is a belly, so to speak, that quickly can become a God to me. And this is how it works. Whatever I want, desire, or crave, whatever I want, desire, or crave is not just my goal, it becomes my God. I don't just want it, I worship it. 
I adore it. I make sacrifices to heaven, right? How do you know your God is your belly? How do you know that you're ruled by your appetite, your desires? We're not just talking about a food appetite. We're talking about an appetite for power, an appetite for pleasure, an appetite for control, an appetite to escape, an appetite uh, to matter. How do you know that you're ruled by your desires? Three things real quick. Number one, you will not ask hard questions about that appetite. That's one danger, one red flag. You will not ask any hard questions about that desire. You won't ask a question like this. How does pressing on for Jesus and belonging to Jesus only inform the way I desire this? What does it look like to bring this desire, this desire for intimacy, this desire for meaning, this desire for control? What would it look like to bring that desire under the lordship of Jesus Christ? You won't ask that question. You won't want to think about it. How does pressing on for Jesus inform the way I use my time? You don't want anyone to speak about your time. It's your time, and you're going to use it however you want, and you haven't thought at all recently about what it means to bring your time under the lordship of Jesus, your talents, your treasures, your finances. God forbid anyone ever talk about how you use, spend, or give away your money. That's a danger sign. Uh, you, won't, you won't ever call into question the way in which you want to use your body and ask, well, how do we use our bodies in a way that honors the Lord, our minds, our energies, our freedoms. And so we refuse to ask these questions and we stop asking hard questions about the desires in our hearts and in our lives. It leads to a lack of health. In fact, Paul says here, refusal to do so leads all the way to, he uses this phrase, to we will glory in our shame, which means this, the things that should be shameful, we will celebrate them. And listen, I'm not someone who rants against society as a whole, but we see it in society. The things that often should be in some way shameful, we are now glorying in and celebrating and rejoicing in. And Paul said this is what happens. So number one, you won't ask hard questions about it. Number two, you will get very defensive when other people try. If someone tries to ask you a hard question about a desire or an appetite or a craving in your life, you will cut them out of your life. You will shut them down. You will surround yourself with people who will always agree with you. And then the last clue that you're being ruled by an appetite is you will let nothing keep you from it. Nothing will keep you from it. What is your greatest appetite in life? You know how you know? Make a list, I was thinking about this this week, make a list of what can keep you from something. And whatever the shortest list is, that's your greatest appetite. Whatever, make a list, what could keep me away from this activity? What could keep me away from being here? What could keep me away from doing this? Make that list. And whatever the shortest list is, that's your greatest appetite. Let me just give you some kind of step on your toes examples here. What's the shorter list? The things that can keep you from spending time with the Lord every day? Or the things that keep you from your favorite show? Or your favorite team? Right? Ouch. I didn't like the question either, so don't worry. But we have to ask these questions. If we don't ask hard questions, we may not grow up in Christ. Make a list of things that can keep you from gathering with believers once a week for an hour. And then make a list of things that keep you from other social gatherings or going to work or getting your kids off to school. Now, I'm not, again, you know my heart. I'm not trying to be legalistic about this. What I'm trying to say is you got to ask some hard questions. You have to be willing to consider what keeps me from certain things that reveal you. So, here, so let me move on. Here's, here, there's a little tense in the room. Here's, here's Paul's message to us. The way we live... 
the way we walk, our appetites, what we crave, what we desire, the things in which we revel, re, uh, revel the, the, our inner disposition actually tells us, what's inside of us tells us whether we are a Christian or not. Do you want to know you're growing in Christ? Pay attention to your belly. <laughs> Pay attention to your appetites. Pay attention to your cravings. We must fight what's inside of us, the appetites and the desires that defy God and conflict what his best for us is. Now, before we get to our last point this morning, let me just stop and say, how do we do this? Okay. So, so far we've said we got to forget what's behind. we got to fight what's inside. How do we do this? And here's what I'm convinced of. No, first off, number one, no one can do this for you. Kids, your parents can't do this for you. Husbands, your wives cannot do this for you. Wives, your husbands cannot do this for you. Your best friend can't do this for you. Your spiritual grandma who prays 20 hours a day, she can't do it for you, okay? So number one, no one can do it for you. But number two, you can't do it alone. You cannot do this alone. So there's two aspects of this. There's personal responsibility. And Paul says it here in this text. There's, he said, there's one thing I do. Paul is taking responsibility for his race. He said, I will only, the singular focus, I will fight with everything I have for myself. And some of you, if I'm probably, are not fighting for yourselves hard enough spiritually. You're fighting for yourselves in other ways. You're fighting for your careers and you're fighting for relationships and you're fighting uh, for success, but you're not fighting for yourself spiritually. And what does it look like for you to fight for yourself? It's like personal responsibility. You got to do it. But then secondly, we have to do it in community. And we know because in this text, Paul uses this word, imitate. And you can't imitate if you're in a vacuum, right? You can't imitate if you're all alone. To imitate requires you to be in proximity to someone that you can imitate. I talk, I, I've told this story before. First time I stood up in someone's wedding, we were, we were getting introduced. And as we were getting introduced, I realized, oh my goodness, they're going to make us dance, like the bride and the groom wanted the bridal party to come out and dance with them halfway through their first dance. And I didn't grow up dancing. And so I didn't know how to dance. And so I'm panicking. And, I, and it's a girl I don't even know. I barely know her. And so I'm, I'm so nervous. And I get out there and the time comes and they say, all right, we're going to have the bridal party join the bride and the groom on the dance floor. And I'm like, if you can see my heart, it was like racing. I go out there and all I did was watch somebody else the whole time. I just stared at someone who looked like they knew where they, what they were doing. And everything they did, I did. That poor girl, I didn't look her in the eye once. Why? I was imitating someone who knew what they were doing. Can't do it alone. Paul says, imitate. If you're going to imitate others, and if others are going to imitate you, it requires community. Be available. Be teachable. What I love, though, real quick, side note, Paul just said he's not perfect. But then he said, imitate me. You know what that means? You don't have to be perfect for other people to learn from you. Paul's intent is not for the Philippians to focus on him, but rather for the Philippians to join him in humble, radical dependence on Christ. You don't have to be perfect to have others learn from you. You just need to know that you're not perfect and then model a full dependence on Christ. All right, last thing we learned this morning, I'm going to ask Pastor Anthony to join me. We have to forget what's behind us, we have to fight what's inside of us. And lastly, we have to focus on what's before us. Our youngest daughter, Maddie, some of you don't know her. She has cerebral palsy. She was born at 27 weeks and has had probably five or six surgeries throughout the course of her young life. She's eight years old. And uh, when we prepare her for surgeries or for tests or for blood draws, one of the things that my wife has kind of brilliantly discovered is that one of the ways to get Maddie through it is to tell her what we're going to do after it. 
So she's going to get her blood drawn for the umpteenth time. We'll say, all right, as soon as we're done, we're going to go to Target. That's, her, that's Maddie's favorite place in the world. We're going to go to Target, and you can use your wheelchair, and you can go through the toy aisles, and you can pick out an LOL doll. Maddie's favorite toy is this thing called an LOL doll. Uh, we're just drowning them in our, drowning in them at our house right now. Um, and, and Maddie, even in the worst moments of the appointment, she can be strengthened and encouraged by just a simple, what are we doing later? Where are we going next? And she'll say, we're going to Target. And... We're getting an LOL doll. And you'll see, even as she's suffering, she'll smile and she'll rejoice. As Christians, we have so much more, we have so much more to look forward to than a trip to Target and an LOL doll. And Paul, in this passage, he uses this language that he is, he's moving towards something. He's not just moving away from something. He's moving towards something. He's pressing on. He's straining forward. Well, to what? Where is he headed? Same place we're all headed. Let's, re- let's read the rest of this passage. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Now this would have meant a lot more to the Philippians than it means to you and me. Because Philippi was an outpost of Rome. And many of them didn't have the rights or the wealth to become actual citizens of Rome. You, did, you either had to be born a Roman citizen or you had to purchase your citizenship. And most of them could only dream of being a citizen of Rome, even though they lived in the outpost of Rome. And here we are living, so to speak, in an outpost of heaven. But we don't have to just dream of our citizenship in heaven. We can believe it's a sure thing. Paul says, don't forget, Philippians, your citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven, we await a savior. Now, this word also would have meant something different to them because Roman emperors called themselves saviors. The Caesars were considered saviors. But Paul is saying here, there's only one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's how we know he is the Savior above all other Saviors. What will he do? Verse 21, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And it's kind of clunky, but here's what Paul is saying, that because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the power by which he rose from the dead, he now gives to those who believe in him so that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and not just a spiritual resurrection, but a physical resurrection. So even as our bodies on this earth, we get older and we waste away and we get more aches and pains that someday because of the savior that we serve, Jesus will resurrect us and we'll have a resurrected physical body with no more sin, no more sickness, no more shame. And he can do this because of the work he did on the cross and the empty tomb. And then verse one of the next chapter, here's Paul's conclusion. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, he's calling the Philippians the crowning achievement of his ministry and his work. Stand firm in the Lord my beloved. This is how we mature in Christ. We forget what's behind us. We fight what's inside of us. We focus on what's before us. Jesus, our Savior. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, if Jesus, Jesus, our Savior, isn't that behind us? Isn't that what he did on the cross? And the answer is yes, but no. Because there's actually three verb tenses to salvation. You've heard this probably here before. But here's Jesus, our Savior. Here's how great our Savior is. He's done three types of salvation for us, so to speak. Past tense, he has saved us from the penalty of our sins. 
So because of Jesus' perfect life and his substitutionary death in our place, the penalty of our sins, which is separation from God and even separation from one another and even separation from our true selves, the penalty of sin we have been saved from past tense. If you're a believer in Jesus, the penalty of sin has no claim on you anymore. You're innocent and you're righteous in the eyes of God the Father, our judge. But it's not just past tense salvation, present tense salvation. He is saving us from the power of sin. This is what it means to mature in Christ. Sin has less and less power over us as we forget what's behind, fight what's inside, and focus on what before. But then there's something great ahead of us. That someday, future tense, when we see him, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And you'll serve Jesus the way you wished you always had and you'll love him perfectly and we'll love one another perfectly and for eternity we will experience the presence the goodness and the grace of God with no hindrances yes you're not perfect yes you're fighting a real battle I know some of your battles they're real yes there are enemies of the cross out there and yes sometimes you and I are that enemy but here's what Paul's saying. Do not lose hope. There is a Savior. And we fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus fixed his eyes on you. Verse 12, let's go back to it and we'll pray. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Jesus Christ fixed his eyes on you and walk to the cross to suffer and to die, to make you his own. What Jesus will do for us someday is possible because of what Jesus did do for us on that day. And so we're grateful. And we learn by his grace to forget, to fight, and to focus. Let's pray together this morning.